everyone. Welcome to Then Again, again with me, Glenn. And we're here again for our second part of a three-part series on important events in Latin American history. And I have with me again, Dr. Spike. Dr. Spike, thanks for joining us again today. I am glad to be back. So today I have drug you in here to tell us a little bit about the Mexican Revolution and and what kind of, I mean, you know, most folks, as we get a little closer to home, I think people are going to realize that some of these events have had major impacts on the life we live today and on the, on the history of the entire world. Sure. So let's tell us a little bit about, you know, the Mexican Revolution. What were they revolting against and what were they hoping to accomplish? All right. Well, we're going to talk about the Mexican Mexican Revolution of 1910. Now, a hundred years before that, Mexico had fought a war for independence, and we can talk about that. You know, it's a revolution of independence, right? Like the American Revolution. But this revolution, the revolution from 1910 to 1920, is Mexico really reinventing itself, right? Mexico coming out of that revolution of independence over that hundred years had had some rough periods, right? As it's, you know, inventing itself as a nation. And, you know, most of the Americas do. The Americas, if you look back at, you know, how many constitutions most of the nations in the Americas have had, it's been a lot of constitutions. Or they don't necessarily, you know, emerge as a constitutional uh, democracy and remain one. You know, Mexico had been an empire for a hot minute, (laughs) (laughs) Um, as had a couple other Latin American nations. But, you know, even the United States, you know, we we stumble with the Articles of Confederation before we, you know, emerge um, with the Constitution. So Mexico, over that hundred years, had some very rough patches. There is an era in Latin America that they talk about as the era of Caudillos, which is kind of like a big man. Right, uh, uh, almost like a mob boss in some way. <laughs> so it had this era of caudillismo, which Americans are really kind of familiar with the Mexican era because it was under Santa Ana, and that's the era of the Mexican-American War. Right. right. Just as an aside, one of the things that most Americans don't really know or realize about the Mexican-American War is that we invaded Mexico, we took Mexico City, and again, there was a minute there where there was the toying with the idea of do we add Mexico? Is this ours now? <laughs> um, and Winfield Scott, who had invaded, was like, mm, I'm not so sure if you want to do that. Right. We'll um, just take half of it. Yeah. And of course, <laughs> this is what happens, right? You know, right. With the Mexican-American War, this is where most of the, the American Southeast came from. Uh, but going beyond that, you know, now we're going to go to 1910. That had been one of the rough patches in the 100 years. The latest one was a kind of mixed bag for Mexico called uh, the Porfiriato, and it was named after a dictator by the name of Porfirio Diaz. And Diaz was part of a modernizing movement within Latin America, which sounds great, right? Mm -hmm. Mexico, during this period, had kind of increased its international reputation, and uh, lots of railroads were built. There was a lot of modernization going on. The problem was is that that modernization only benefited the elite. And so for most Mexicans, what we see is that, you know, this this period leading up to the revolution was one of increasing pressures because as it's modernizing, uh, labor isn't modernizing with it, which is, of course, a story that we hear all over the place during industrial revolutions. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we see those labor pressures in Mexico now. We see pressures of unequal wealth distribution, where um, very, very few people within Mexico own most of the land. 
and yet it's an agrarian economy. And, you know, a lot of the Mexican population, especially in the South, are subsistence farmers. Well, they're really having a hard time subsisting once it gets to 1910. And so what ends up bringing this about is that dictator Porfirio Diaz is feeling pretty good about himself. He's feeling unchallenged. He's feeling good on the international stage. And he goes up for an election in 1910. And he says, you know, this is an open election. Bring on all comers. And a guy by the name of Francisco, Francisco Madero says, okay, yeah, I'll take that bet. Um, one of my favorite little anecdotes about that that may or may not be true, could be true actually, was that Madero had been told by a Ouija board that he was going to be a Mex- the Mexican president. And so this is part of what influenced <laughs> right. him. Right? I, I want it to be true. I don't know if it is true, but I want it to be true. Right. <laughs> so anyway, oh, I'm just imagine that because then for him, it would actually go S-I, not Y-E-S. <laughs> That's excellent. Oh, man. Okay. You know, um, maybe another time, you know, you can have a a podcast on occult history. Oh, yeah, we need one of those. Yes. There you go. We'll save it for that. Uh, But in any case, so Francisco Madero runs, um, there's some kind of preliminary fights throughout Mexico in support of Diaz and Madero. But eventually, um, Diaz throws Madero in prison. (laughs) And then Madero has to go into exile. And he wins. He wins. Uh, And this is what, you know, the kind of catalyst of the Mexican Revolution, right? Or at least one of the catalysts of the Mexican Revolution. The Mexican Revolution becomes this decade-long violent period in Mexican history where even after, you know, because Diaz is out of power pretty quick, but you still have, you know, nine years of violence, what's going on? It's because they're trying to figure out what Mexico is going to be, right? And and also, you know, there are folks still, you know, fighting from this other nationalist army. But so you've got some folks fighting for the revolution that are constitutionalists, right? And they want a more secular nation in Mexico. They're kind of urban and modern. Then you have uh, the landowners that, yeah, we want a more secular Mexico. We want a constitution, but we want to modernize Mexico. And we want to keep this going because this has been a good thing for us. Mm-hmm. Maybe let's let in more people, but we want this good thing to keep going for us. Then you've got people that are uh, rural and traditional and they just want land reform, right? And they want religious protection. And, um, you know, that. When people know leaders of the Mexican Revolution, typically they know two, Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata, right? So this is Emiliano Zapata's people who are, you know, they want land reform. Uh, And later Zapata will author one of the kind of important documents of the Mexican Revolution, the Plan de Ayala, which outlines, you know, kind of how would we do land reform? And then the last kind of group um, are followers of Pancho Villa, and they've been displaced by modernization. They are people, uh, they want change, but I don't really know what kind of change they want. They want some land and labor reform, but really um, they just want a place in the new nation that they didn't have before. And so over this 10 years, you know, what the most important thing that comes out of it is the Constitution of 1917, which in a lot of ways is a constitution that shapes 
the history of the Americas as a hemisphere, but also it shapes global history as well, because the Constitution of 1917 is the first document in the world to set out and enshrine in a constitution social rights, mm-hmm. right? And so when we think about, you know, the UN Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, a lot of the things that it calls human rights are first protected in the Mexican Revolution and the Constitution of 1917. So it's things like, now, education, right? Free public education is something that we see emerge in lots of nations during this period. Mm-hmm. Mexico is not unique in this, but in protecting it in the Constitution, it is one of the first. It, it sets out the idea that the state is superior, well, supreme over the church. For Latin America, that is important because the church played a huge role in Latin American governance during the colonial period. And to kind of take that guarantee that, you know, the church will educate everybody and the church will have, you know, kind of great influence within the government. Well, the Mexican Revolution and the Constitution of 1917 limit this severely. So, you know, uh, it makes for um, a secular state. Uh, They establish labor reform and guarantee it in the Constitution, an eight-hour workday, minimum wage, the right to organize and strike, uh, the abolishment of debt peonage, which had been a huge factor in Mexican history to that point, you know, basically being tied to uh, uh, land holding because you are in debt, even though mm-hmm. you're working, you know, and that's a familiar story in the United States, of course, right? Right. And such. right, right. Yeah. Universal male suffrage comes out of this constitution, which includes indigenous peoples, uh, which is very early as a guarantee within Latin American history. Uh, there was a debate over women's suffrage. It did not make it into the constitution. And so, you know, there, of course, they, they had really um, missed out. And then finally, land reform, right? Um, they, they empower the state to expropriate land, land from the large land holdings with compensation from the, old, from the owner. Interestingly, too, something that's usually skipped over, but one of the things that this constitution does is it gives subsoil rights back to Mexico and Mexicans. Up until this point, all the subsoil rights had been kind of sold out by Diaz and other people before him to Europeans and Americans. And Mm -hmm. so Mexico is a rich oil country. Right. Yes, very. Most people don't think about that. Yeah, absolutely. Mexico is consistently one of our top five suppliers of oil uh, and has been for decades and decades. Well, uh, up until the 1930s, I think it's 38 when it's nationalized, mostly American companies had owned the oil underneath because Mm -hmm. they bought the subsoil rights. And so this 1917 constitution returns the rights to Mexicans, uh, which sets up national oil in Mexico in 1938. But really the important thing here is the idea of an economic sovereignty, right? Um, Because so much of the economy had been dominated by Americans and Europeans. So was there, by the time you get to 1917, right, with the constitution, is there still... You know, you said that the revolution lasts until 1920. Is there still fighting going on, or is it just the revolution asserting itself? There is still fighting going on. And <laughs> the revolution does not end well for a lot of its leaders. 
something. Almost none of them make it out alive. And some of the people right. are infighting, right? Via is assassinated. Right. Emilio, Emiliano Zapata is assassinated by other forces within the revolution. And so, um, you know, it, it, the end of it is the kind of cementing of the victory, but also a period of intense infighting. Right. You know, who will emerge and what faction will emerge as the dominant force of uh, this, you know, New Mexico. Right. But the, yeah. but the Constitution sticks, and what they're really fighting about is who's going to rule within the Constitution, right? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And that matters tremendously for Mexico, because in Mexican history, after the revolution, you have the creation of, of this party known as the Institutional Revolutionary Party, and the acronym is PRI, PRI. And the PRI were in power in Mexico from the revolution until 2000. They had presidency, and up until the 90s, they held both chambers of the Mexican uh, legislation. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just shocking and tremendous, right? So Mexico, (laughs) it's so complicated and messy. You know, they create this kind of visionary, in some ways, document that becomes the model for other um, constitutions throughout Latin America and, you know, kind of sets up this idea of what we call social democracy, things that we're still kind of debating, are these human rights or not here in the United States, even though a lot of places have accepted them as human rights. Yet at the same point in time, they don't really end up creating a true democracy because PRI gains control of Mexican politics and doesn't let go for 70 years. How does that work out for Mexico? For, for you know, I mean, you know, and, and I know the answer is complicated, but I mean, is that something where you do see uh, over that 100 years, do you see improvement in living conditions and do the reforms, the land reforms, do they actually take hold? What does that, what does that look like? So the answer is generally yes and no. It depends on the period. Right. And so there are some presidents, you know, who are members of this party um, where we see reform. Right. So that period of the 1930s under Lázaro Cárdenas um, is a period of reform where there is kind of this enlargement of who has a voice in Mexico, power in Mexico. Um, You know, the middle class grows to some extent. There are other periods where the middle class shrinks. You know, this is kind of an ongoing debate of, you know, to what extent can we talk about a middle class in Mexico in the 20th century? For indigenous Mexicans, for, and so here let's think of, back to those kind of followers of Emiliano Zapata in South Mexico and, and also um, just smallholders, right? Those subsistence farmers. They do have some land return, but then later on it's threatened again. And so in the 1980s, actually, one of the things that we see that's kind of this callback to the revolution is an indigenous movement known as the Zapatistas, right? They're naming themselves for Emiliano Zapata, who are calling for a lot of the same things, including land reform and and, and rights and a voice for indigenous Mexicans. And so, uh, yeah, the 1980s is, is kind of marked by this movement within Mexican history as well. Right. And, you know, when we here in the States tend to think of our relations with Mexico, we think of our relations with Mexico. But as you Mm -hmm. said, the revolution and the 
constitution that came out of it have huge influences on the rest of Latin America. Can you talk a little bit? You know, I think here in the States, we tend to think of Mexico as the leader of the rest of Latin America with just the way it's done. Is that is that accurate? Is that? I mean, I think in some ways you can talk, think of it like that because they're a large economy, right? They are um, a nation. So here in the United States, when people think about immigration, we think about, you know, immigration of people, you know, moving through Mexico and Mexicans immigrating to the United States. Mexico has long had an immigration problem themselves, right? Because Mexico was, you know, stable in years when other nations within Latin America and particularly Central America were not. And so, you know, in terms of, you know, the economy and stability, especially if you're talking about Mexico down through Central America, Mexico is in some ways, you know, a leader within Latin America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a fair characteristic, to, you know, a fair thing to say. Right. So how, um, oh, as we as Mexico moves forward, mm-hmm. uh, this, you know, this is something we sure celebrate our Independence Day. We've got one yeah. coming up. Tell me a little bit about how Mexicans themselves see you know, first we we uh, we've already done a podcast on what Cinco de Mayo actually is. So hopefully yeah. our listeners already know that it's not Mexican Independence Day. Yep. <laughs> so how does Mexico sort of celebrate and look at its past in terms of the revolution and its constitution? You know, what is their take on things from so, from a from a cultural and social perspective? Absolutely. So the Mexican Revolution is a tremendously important turning point within Mexico, Mexican history. And it is seen as that and celebrated as that. A lot of the leaders of the Mexican revolution are, you know, held up as kind of heroes of Mexico. One of my favorite places in Mexico to uh, visit, and I would encourage anybody, if you get the chance and you find yourself in Mexico City, go to the presidential palace. And in the presidential palace, uh, you walk in and there's this two-story wall where it's stairs leading up either side. And there, um, the very famous muralist, Diego Rivera, who most people, you know, a lot of people are familiar with him and his work, painted a history of Mexico, right? From pre-Columbian through, you know, the post-revolution era. And the revolution is very much celebrated, right? And in this era of, you know, the 1920s in Mexico, uh, where we have this kind of turn to the arts to celebrate and create a new Mexican identity. The revolution is one of those touchstones that you see celebrated in the literature, in the art, um, in just everything that kind of defines at that point and then resonates later Mexicanness, right? Right. Well, and that's, you know, it's it's one one of the reasons I wanted to ask that question is is to sort of set it up. As you know, and as a lot of our listeners probably know, there is a significant Hispanic population here in you know here in northeast georgia Mm -hmm. which means we have a lot of awesome mexican restaurants and when you go in the mexican restaurants the decor is very sort of mexico in the 20s yeah The, the the paintings the photographs the faux architecture and things it's got that look about it and then i like you say i i guess that's you know i guess they see that as Mexicanness. Yeah, that 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 era of you know these very famous muralists, Rivera being one of them, right? Um, kind of really shapes what 
an identity is, but also, you know, in some ways, you know, what people think about when they think about Mexican art. And, and <laughs> to be fair, too, when you go to Mexico, any of the big cities or just anywhere, you see a lot of murals still. And they're political in nature, a lot of them. Right, um, okay. But also just about, you know, identity. Who are we as a people? Right, right. Fascinating. So the United States relationship with Mexico in this period was tricky. You know, we had Pershing and the punitive expedition, yep. which we thought got us prepared for World War One. Spoiler alert, it didn't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, ever, ever since then, ever since the revolution, the United States has had a, perhaps a shaky, but at least a stable relationship yeah. with Mexico. I mean, in, in, in the grand scheme of things, it seems, and please correct me if I'm wrong, pretty stable. Mexico has been our biggest partner within Latin America. Right. Historically speaking. But, you know, the rest of Latin America, the United States has had very interesting relationships as as other revolutions have taken place. And that's what I want to do is set us up for our next time together yep. when we're going to be talking about what? Well, we're going to be talking about the 1954 overthrow of Guatemala in a coup in part backed by the CIA. Ah, the CIA, our friends-ish. So, <laughs> so yeah, folks, that's you know that's the Mexican Revolution. I'll ask you the same question that I did last time to sort of close up. Are there good sources people can go to to find out more about this event that you would recommend? Yeah, absolutely. And let's go with something different this time. There are a lot of really great novels about the Mexican Revolution. One of the most famous ones is called The Underdogs in Spanish, Los de Abajo. And it is just about a, a group of people fighting in the Mexican Revolution that are, and it tells their story. And it's, it's just a really, it's very short, but it's a really great novel. Uh, and then the other thing I would say that a lot of people might find interesting is there's lots of books on the soldaderas of Mexico, um, the women that fight within the revolution, some on the front lines, some smugglers. You know, one of the things they talk about is how um, women could famously smuggle in about 100 rounds of ammunition underneath their skirts uh, when they came back from the U.S. Uh, and um, I guess maybe we can end on a fun fact, too. Um, when you see the pictures of these soldaderas, one of the things you will notice is that they look like Princess Leia, a lot of them. This is the inspiration for Leia's buns. <laughs> it actually comes from a Mayan, or from an indigenous hairdo. Oh, fantastic. But yeah. <laughs> now, now we all have to... Uh, read the novel first, and then go watch Star Wars, yeah. and then it all it all ties together. And then all right. Pictures of That's right. All right. Thanks for joining us, folks. Thanks, Doctor Spike, again for joining us for this episode, and we will see you next time to talk about Guatemala. Thank you. Then again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.